directly from the launch pad. Bringing blue collar to your cell tower. The rock and roll libertarian himself. It's time to blast off with Johnny Rocket. And you gotta dig that rockabilly scene I know you gotta dig that hip-hop high And you gotta dig an old sample that five Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket And I'm here with our special co-host, Miss You ready? Sherry Voluntary! Bam! <laughs> Thanks for having me, Johnny All right, Sherry, well, thank you so much How, how you been? I'm doing great, you know I'm just social distanced over here a little bit Six feet away, <laughs> six feet away Not <laughs> touching people's hands And not touching their yeah. faces When you pee, you wash your hands You san- hand sanitizer right. and, uh, yeah, You know me, obedient to the core Yeah, Totally obedient <laughs> Obedient. Yeah, that's exactly what you do Yeah, it's exactly yeah. No, we don't do that Because we are libertarians <laughs> And thank God for that And uh, you know what? I just I'm just blown away by the hysteria that has been you know, just absolutely everywhere, everywhere, every, every corner you turn, there's some new case of somebody's dying, you know, and again, I'm all about private property rights. I'm about you owning yourself and I'm about you owning your body and the choices that you make. If you want to go outside, please go outside. If you don't, please don't. Sherry, what do you have to say about this? Uh, yeah, I think the, the hysteria is a bigger problem than the, like, keep your head about you, be smart, you know, be considerate. But also, let's not destroy the whole economy in the world while we're doing that. So, um, yeah, I think that uh, there are a lot of considerations to make that are not so level-headed that people should be kind of considering. But, you know, we don't control things. <laughs> that is right. We don't control things. <laughs> and wish we would. I wish we would. So, according to Troy Camplin from the Mises Institute, zoning laws are a violation of property rights. They destroy the sense of community in neighborhoods, increase crime, increase traffic congestion, contribute to urban and suburban air pollution, contribute to poverty, contribute to reliance in government, and thus reduce self-reliance. And contribute to the ruin of our schools, which maybe isn't a bad thing. Most of our urban and suburban problems arose with zoning and other anti-property laws, to which welfare programs and public housing projects have contributed. Each of these policies came out of the idea that society would be engineered from a top down to give rise to efficiency, community, and prosperity. But what in fact resulted was the opposite outcome. Dr. Ben O'Neill, he's a research fellow at the Australian National University. He has formerly practiced as a lawyer and a political advisor in Canberra. Okay, Sherry, prepare for liftoff. I'll copy that, Johnny. Covers, tie-downs, and grounding cables. Removed as required. Communications connected. Check. Preamps in the green. Check. Cold beer. Double check. Thrusters are hot. Sherry, are you ready to rock? All systems go, Johnny. Let's blast off with Ben O'Neill! so much for being on the show. I know that your country's on shutdown too, but we're here to discuss libertarian ideas and you are being a rebel and you're sticking around. Thank you for having me. Rock and roll, <laughs> man. So, man, it's such a cool, it's such an honor. I've never talked to anyone from oh, Australia. Wonderful. Ever. 
It is an honor for you, Ben. <laughs> it is an honor. So, Ben, I know I've, I've read your articles on the MisesInstitute.com and the Mises Wire, and you have extensive knowledge on zoning. And, and one of our listeners actually said to me, hey, man, why don't you do a show on zoning? Because I really want to know. And I, I read your article, and I'm like, man, this guy knows a lot. And so, Ben, Mr. O'Neill, or Dr. O'Neill, what are zoning laws? When did they start? And what is the supposed reason we have them? And what are some of the similarities between zoning laws in Australia and other parts of the world? Yeah, well, look, in terms of um, the history of zoning laws and when they started, to, to kind of really understand the emergence of zoning laws, you almost have to go back and give a bit of a potted history of, of Western civilization because it's really a, a matter of mm -hmm. something that's grown out of a, a general phenomenon of centralized urban planning. And of course, the kind of general phenomenon of centralized urban planning goes back millennia. And uh, you can observe even in very ancient civilizations in the Bronze Age and so on, you know, 4,700 to 5,000 years ago, centrally planned small towns or cities by the standards of what existed then. Um, however, the kind of centralized right. control of cities uh, that has come about when you have private ownership and then a centralized authority above trying to impose particular rules for how that land is used, uh, that's much more recent. And essentially what has happened, the underlying lying context of zoning laws is as the Western world came out of feudalism, there was this emergence of the Industrial Revolution in the 18th century uh, in Europe. And in the 18th and 19th century, you had a shift away from the kinds of landed estates held by nobility and towards a more decentralized private property system. And you also had very rapid industrialization and expansion of cities. And so that rapid industrialization also meant that there was a lot of smoke pollution and other kinds of pollution in areas that had a lot of residential buildings. And so that's the period where we see right. a kind of a rise in property and use conflicts between relatively small private owners. And I say relatively, uh, relative insofar that they were much smaller owners than the previous kind of landed gentry of the feudal era. And in, in that kind of system, you had very rapid changes in the composition and size of cities. And so beginning to emerge in the late mm -hmm. 19th century and more systematically in the early 20th century, you start getting the emergence of these little ordinances that gradually build up to a system of zoning. So a very early one was in the UK called the Housing and Town Planning Act of 1909. And in the US and in Australia, there have also been a number of acts introduced, um, usually at a state level at around that same time and, and then building up gradually. And that, so over that period, essentially, you've had uh, a system of zoning laws emerge. Hmm. Interesting. You were mentioning, you know, the, the property rights. How does, are there any other, I know as a libertarian, I'm concerned with an individual's property rights. Are there any other outside of libertarian circles ideas and um, maybe research on this and other solutions besides zoning laws? Well, I mean, I suppose that's the dichotomy, isn't it? Because the, the zoning system is the kind of top-down government-imposed central planning solution to the system. And the libertarian approach is uh, one rooted in the decentralized private property system. So in a sense, I think those two approaches right. kind of cover the field. 
Um, there's obviously huge differences in the level of detail that can be imposed in a centralised zoning system. So, so there's all sorts of mixtures between various levels of centralised control versus underlying uh, planning by individual property owners. But I think every kind of system is going to be some kind of a mixture of property rights versus um, controls. So that's, that's kind of the same dichotomy we see in virtually every political issue in a mixed economy, mm. this, this mixture of uh, central planning versus underlying decentralised uh, planning. Sure. Well, Professor O'Neill, okay, so hear, hear me out on this. How the hell did the people of the world, right? I'm just saying yeah. in the world, agree to this. Like, how did like somebody's like, oh, this is a good idea. I'm going to support this guy or this politician, right? How did they actually come up with these ideas? Because like, okay, of course the state wants control, yeah. right? But how did they sell this? I mean, like, that's the mm -hmm. problem I have is how is the average person in the world duped into thinking, yeah, this is a good idea. Let me give up some of my liberty to these guys because, you know, oh, heaven forbid there's going to be a brothel next to the preschool. Right. Right. You know what I mean? Like, to me, that's... And I mean, Professor, I don't know. Like, how do you think they sold this? What has historically been the sales point? Well, I guess this? the historical kind of way these things emerged is probably different from the reason that it holds a reasonable amount of support now. Right. If you go back and look at historically the context for when these kinds of systems emerged, um, as I say, this, this was something that emerged during the kinds of periods of very rapid industrialization expansions of cities um, right. in essentially the industrialization of the 18th and 19th century. And I think what you find there is quite a large number of use conflicts between private owners, which previously had been dealt with by the kinds of common law actions to courts under nuisance laws and you know, pollution laws and trespass laws with regard to properties. So historically, before you had zoning laws, you had a system of common law where uh, if someone polluted your property, for example, from a neighboring property, there were tort actions you could take against that person mm. to try and restrain okay. that behavior. And there were sure. a lot of um, conflicts that emerged in this time over things like access to sunlight um, and access to clean air. One of the things that was happening mm -hmm. was that for the first time, very tall buildings were starting to be built in residential areas and people had situations occurring where their previously sunny building was now being overshadowed by another building. And you had, had quite a lot of actually quite difficult legal cases in terms of trying to determine who had the appropriate property right here. Because while, mm -hmm. while the underlying private property system is very sensible, there, there are certainly a lot of hard cases that arise. And I mm -hmm. think in that context, you know, one of the things that was very attractive to uh, property owners and the state and various kinds of lobby groups was the idea of having a kind of centralized set of rules that would be imposed. And, and mm -hmm. you know, more recently, as you probably know, one of the things that zoning laws allows is that those interests who are connected to the state and have influence over the state have some capacity to have areas of property rezoned to their own benefit. So 
there's an enormous amount of money and advantage sure. yeah. to be made if you are sufficiently well politically connected um, to obtain the benefits of zoning laws. So I think all of those things kind of taken together explains why uh, zoning laws were able to take off in that period. Yeah, roger that. Just to take sort of a, a real world example that I'm a little familiar with, and maybe you are as well, Houston, Texas. And it, it's been said that they have no zoning laws there. And so I, I wondered how you viewed that, if that's actually the case, and what are some of the, maybe the good aspects of what they've done versus the not so great aspects of what they have? Yeah, um, so Houston is an interesting case because it's uh, it's got a, a very decentralized system and so rather than relying on centralized zoning laws in Houston, they have a system, uh, a whole lot of restrictive covenants on properties and this is a, a kind of a, this is essentially what libertarians would suggest as an alternative to zoning laws. Um, so in the absence yeah. of zoning laws, right. generally what you're going to do is have, if there are going to be restrictions on where people can build, those will be attached to the property title as what are called restrictive covenants in law. And a restrictive covenant essentially means that although the owner owns the property, they're restricted from using it in a certain way according to the restrictive covenant. And the, that covenant is held as a property interest by others, usually by uh, people who own neighboring properties. So what you'll get in that kind of system is, for example, you might have a block of buildings and perhaps they all decide that they want to impose a height limit on the buildings, for example. And so then each property owner would hold a restrictive covenant on the property rights of the other owners and they'd add that to the property title. And that would essentially allow each of the owners to restrict what the other owners can do. And of course, like anything on a property title, those things can be added or they can be removed. So long as you've got consent from all the re relevant parties owning these things, you could buy um, a person out of the restrictive covenant if they agree to that and so on. So this is the kind of alternative you get um, when you have um, either an absence of or much less invasive zoning laws. Uh, professor, was the zoning of residential areas creating huge gaps of land for single family homes? And then I know that that's just not the United States, it's everywhere. Does that mm. make single family homes more expensive and does this lower the availability of low income housing? And why is that beneficial to the state? And is that the reason cities like San Francisco and Seattle, Washington are the highest places to live in the United States? Wow. Well, that's a lot of questions at once. I'll take them <laughs> a bit at a time. Yeah, yeah. That, um, I was just, that, that was the one I was really <laughs> trying to bring home, man. That's fine. That's fine. Just for the benefit of your listeners, it might be worth me just explaining a little bit of the background of um, the zoning for single family homes. So... There, there are a lot of different zoning systems uh, in existence nowadays, but historically one of the main uh, systems of zoning, what you might regard as the standard zoning system, is something called the Euclidean zoning system, um, okay. which is actually named after a little town, the town of Euclid in Ohio, uh, which in turn is named after the Greek mathematician. So it's kind of indirectly in any case, um, in this zoning system, you have a split into different kinds of land uses, residential, commercial and industrial areas. And within the residential areas, there's often a split made between 
single and multi-dwelling zones and the, okay. the single zones are for kind of standalone single family houses whereas the multi uh, multi-family zones will have things like apartment buildings and so historically in the Euclidean zoning system as you say there were very large tracts of land that were generally zoned as uh, single family zoning particularly in a lot of the US states and also in Australia that was for a long time a very common method of zoning. So if any of your listeners have played the computer game SimCity, they might remember zoning <laughs> okay, land as yeah. residential, commercial or industrial. Well, when you do that's that, right. that's essentially the Euclidean zoning system. <laughs> yes, right. and yes, I so, played that goddamn game. It sucked. <laughs> yeah, but I got it. I got you. I got you. Uh, I loved that, uh, that game when I was a kid. So that's my inner central planner. <laughs> <laughs> come out. Like, like that's oh, your no. inner status coming out. That's your yeah, inner status that's right. coming out. Yeah, that's, right. that's exactly right. We all, we all have one. In any case, just to get to your question on the kinds of effects on prices that this has, this is where it gets kind of complicated. So property prices are, as you know, obviously affected by supply and demand. And so that's if right. you restrict land for a particular use, uh, it becomes harder to build properties for that use and diminishes supply. And so all other things being equal, that raises prices. Um, and so there are a number of economic models on zoning. And a lot of these actually stipulate that existing owners will attempt to maximize their own land value. And so the economic models of how zoning works often have an element of competition between owners and non-owners, where once owners buy into land, they're then incentivized to impose more and more zoning restrictions over the areas that they already own to make it more difficult for non-owners to get in and thereby increase uh, the value of their own asset. Um, so okay. there, there is an element in which um, zoning laws, existing owners can try to uh, essentially impose more and more restrictions to drive up the, the price of their own land, colloquially the nimbyism, if you like, mm, that okay. you see in various communities what the effects are of imposing, you know, very large tracts of land for single family homes is it, is it does kind of incentivize this urban sprawl uh, of suburban areas, or sorry, suburban sprawl. Um, yeah. and, and this has a kind of a, a complex uh, set of effects on, on pricing, depending on location. One of the things to note here is the restriction on land also has a lot of benefits to the state and the kind of connected, connected interests to the state. So most state governments impose land taxes that are roughly proportionate to the unimproved land values of the properties that they're taxing. And so if they increase those values through zoning restrictions, that in indirectly increases their tax revenues. And that's gotcha. so it's an artificial very beneficial for the politicians. Absolutely. So it's an artificial tax that they are pretty much forcing, saying, hey, these are sing single family homes and all these upper middle class to rich people are living in and we want them here and we could charge outrageous amounts in property taxes for. In essence, they're controlling exactly where the, the money comes from in these zoning laws. What I'm saying is basically most cities or, you know, towns or whatever don't want low income housing. And again, the, the larger homes, the single family homes is more of a benefit in regards to taxes for the state. 
Right, yeah. So, I mean, one of the things that happens here, because uh, land taxes are generally roughly proportionate to unimproved values, uh, what tends to happen is that the local governments, because this is usually done at a kind of local state level, not at, not at a federal level, they have a kind of an incentive to impose um, zoning laws and other land use laws that improve property values and thereby uh, improve the tax revenue of their system. So what you, you commonly find is that you, if you make the housing more expensive in a particular community, not only does this increase the tax base for the state, but it also means it discourages in, inward migration of poorer residents and that has a whole lot of secondary advantages uh, to the government insofar as poorer residents tend to have higher rates of crime, etc. So um, if you can kind of have a more affluent set of residents, that also deals with a whole lot of secondary problems. So you get these uh, kinds of systems, and this is something you know, discussed in the literature of economic models on zoning, uh, where existing residents in an area kind of have an incentive to uh, have very restrictive controls placed on their own uh, property area, thereby kind of uh, keeping out um, non-owners and uh, increasing sure. the land value. One thing to note here as well, like in talking about the state and its incentives, you know, it's important to bear in mind that the state isn't really a homogenous entity with a single goal. It's really more of a kind of a vast network of people and vast network of interests with, you know, heterogeneous goals. And so one of the things you see here is that, um, for example, in zoning uh, controversies, you often find that there's controversies over connections between, say, uh, local builders and you know, property development firms and their connections to local government and their capacity to influence mm -hmm. zoning decisions from local government. That's, that's often a, uh, an area where you get a lot of controversies sure. here. So you do have these kinds of, uh, I guess what you'd call interest groups connected well, to the yeah. state that, that benefit from uh, changes in these kinds of decisions. Sure. Yeah, and these people, like I was saying, aren't necessarily evil. Not everyone is evil, and they just have their own best interest at heart. But when you have uh, the power of something like that, there tends to be things that go wrong. And sure. decisions are not made. You know, I, I totally understand what you're saying. Like, I, I get it. Like, I'm, I, I just use this as a blanket statement for regards to this. But... Yes, I mean, not everyone who works in the state is bad. I, I get that. Mm -hmm. I'm just saying that when you have that authority and you have that power, everyone acts in self-interest. And when you have that power or authority to change laws, to change things to benefit you, there could be a lot of bad things that come from that. Sure. I'm um, just yes. going back to Houston quickly. I, I just feel I should clarify. Um, yeah. Houston, although it, it doesn't have formal zoning laws, it, it does have um, a lot of uh, various land use regulations that sure. do still impose some restrictions on owners and can be regarded as a kind of a very weak form of de facto zoning laws. So there's a bit of a, you know, a discussion to be had about, you know, exactly how little zoning law Houston has. To some extent, they uh, just take what would traditionally be zoning laws. Uh, and, and put them under another name. But I, I do think it's fair to say that they have a, a much weaker zoning system than other areas. I don't think there is a kind of an example of a fully libertarian um, system in existence at the moment, um, but that's mm -hmm. something, I guess, that is, is closer to the libertarian 
method than other cases. Absolutely. Speaking of, of Houston, what you're saying, how do we then get from that system? You know, what, what's I guess what's the biggest argument that you hear for zoning laws, and how can we as libertarians move? people more towards the idea of them actually being the owners of their property and responsible for it and these new newer ideas that would be better for everyone. Um, so this is where I suppose it gets tricky. One of the uh, tricky things is how you transition over from an existing uh, centralized system of zoning to a decentralized system based on restrictive covenants. Um, and I suppose one of the tricking things, assuming you even have the political will to do so and it's politically feasible, one of the tricky things becomes deciding which existing zoning regulations should take effect as and be transferred over as restrictive covenants owned by private property owners and which should just be removed entirely. And one of the reasons right. this is a difficult question is that zoning laws, like any other kind of government action, tend to crowd out private action. So having mm -hmm. had zoning laws in place for a long period of time, that's crowded out um, the alternative of private property owners negotiating restrictive covenants on their properties with others in their neighbourhood. And so what you'll find mm -hmm. is that those restrictive covenants generally just don't exist um, because they've been crowded <laughs> out by zoning. So, okay. you know, if you were to just press a button and remove all zoning laws immediately, at the moment there would be no or very few restrictive covenants there to kind of regulate what control people have over the land use of their neighbours. And one of the reasons that that's uh, a little difficult for people is that a lot of people have bought into neighbourhoods relying on zoning laws and relying on those kinds of restrictions as an expectation of how uh, their neighbours will use their property. So there is a, a kind of a question of how you transition over and I think what would need to be done would be that someone would need to go through all of the various zoning laws and decide which can just be scrapped outright and which need to be converted over to restrictive covenants held on the land title of property owners and how exactly that's done. And that's obviously you know, a hugely complicated issue. Um, you know, there would be sure. a lot of controversies involved in doing that, but I think that's that's the kind of um, transition you're talking about. Great. So regarding zoning laws, I mean, we're talking about like how they're, you know, basically in the favor of the state, the, the governments, the local governments, even the federal government or all federal governments. But regarding that, are zoning laws inherently racist? I mean, do they keep the poor out of nicer neighborhoods? And is that done intentionally? And again, I'm not a social justice warrior. I could, you know, I think <laughs> sure. that's... But what I'm saying is, like, just like the minimum wage, that right. was started from very inherently no, racist... question. Uh, look, yeah. I certainly am also not a social justice warrior, and I don't believe that zoning laws are inherently racist, but obviously they do grant uh, discretion, and the discretion to create zoning laws that differentially affect different areas of a city can certainly be used as a means of trying to drive out disliked groups, including disliked racial groups, or it can be uh, used to penalise poor people generally. So, you know, I... Personally, I don't believe that zoning laws are inherently racist. They are laws that are generally neutral on their face. Uh, but since they contain uh, discretion to differentially affect uh, different areas of the city, they can certainly be used for kind of ulterior purposes. 
Uh, and indeed, you're correct sure. that, that much like minimum wage laws, um, there is some kind of historical uh, aspect of zoning laws where they have been used historically to try to um, keep races of people separate, for example. So historically, right. there have been in instances of this occurring. And part of the history of this is that zoning laws uh, were one of the babies of the quote-unquote progressive movements of the late 19th yes. and 20th centuries. Now, uh, <laughs> yeah. anyone with any historical familiarity with the, the early 20th century progressive movements will know that they were steeped in a worldview that looked very unkindly on what they called the inferior races. Mm. And so they would generally try <laughs> to keep uh, those groups separate from white. And one yeah, of, the, right. one of yeah. the many, many methods they used to do this uh, was the use of zoning laws. Um, it's sure. certainly not exclusively the use of zoning laws, uh, but that was one of many methods. You mentioned also minimum wage laws. You know, that was another way that was used to keep uh, the quote-unquote mm -hmm. inferior races away from workplaces where they were not wanted. Licensure. Uh, so That's right. These, yeah, a, a lot of these kinds of um, state uh, laws, while neutral on their face, um, they have historically been used in a way that was often motivated by racial animus um, and they certainly can be used that way or they can be used in a way that's not uh, racist. So, I mean, it's, it's, it's really a little pr unfair probably to blame zoning laws or the middle, minimum wage law per se for um, those uses, but um, certainly those uses are possible. Okay, anyway, so this is Johnny Rocket. We're going to take a quick commercial break. We'll be right back. Rock and roll. Inflammatory. Uncalled for. What about my pension? Outrageously offensive. Racist. Ladies and gentlemen, Johnny Rocket's two minute hate speech. Hate speech. Johnny Rocket's This is Johnny Rocket's two-minute hate speech. Sometimes longer. Johnny Rocket's two-minute hate speech, banned by your governor. As P.T. Barnum once said, there's a sucker born every minute. I've always been a skeptic of the state and the powers that they hold. It's incredible, really. The power not only of the media, but also the local and state governments. And of course, especially the feds. Since initial reports of the coronavirus under the codename COVID-19 started coming out of the woodwork in January, the response on social media has ranged wildly from hilarious memes to measured caution and sometimes from the weakest among us, even unmitigated panic. Yet, based on the findings of the CDC as of March 6, coronavirus has led to more than 100,000 illnesses and over 3,000 deaths worldwide, although the U.S. has only experienced 70 deaths. 70 in a country of 310 million. And still, this alone is nothing compared to even the common flu. Keep it in perspective, people. Just in the U.S. alone, the flu has caused an estimated 34 million illnesses, close to half a million hospitalizations, as well as 20,000 deaths this season alone. In fact, COVID-19 isn't even statistically significant yet if you factor in illnesses and deaths from coronavirus into the aggregate seasonal flu numbers. There has been no noticeable change, no reason for panic, forced closures, toilet paper shortages, and the rest of it. 
Furthermore, global stocks have plummeted and the economy is faltering. The stock market is swinging thousands of points in either direction, depending on Trump's most recent tweets and other authoritarian edicts. They've had to suspend trading multiple times already, and the crisis has still only just begun. In the past two weeks alone, the Federal Reserve has already injected almost $2 trillion into the economy, cut interest rates to zero, and has since lowered the fractional reserve requirement also to zero. This is economic insanity. In comparison, the volume of these injections actually surpassed Bush's TARP bailout and Obama's first stimulus package. And yes, that's right. If you go tomorrow and put your money in the bank, they can literally loan you out 100% of your deposit that they're not required to actually hold on to any of it. So from one same individual to another, I ask you, what could possibly go wrong? Now, I don't want to be misunderstood. I truly believe there's a virus out there that is harming people. But to what extent? And compared to what? How many people have had their businesses mandatorily shut down? How many more people should have to lose their jobs? What's the economic cost of all of this? What's next? Curfews? Searches? Forced vaccines? Dare I say, concentration camps? The possibilities for injustice are virtually limitless. But the average American still has their head so far up their proverbial ass that they're utterly clueless as to really know what's going on. To be clear, I still don't know anyone personally that has contracted the virus. However, I do know many people whose livelihoods have been affected or infected by the state. And I know damn well that these actions by the Federal Reserve are going to harm all of us greatly in the long run. Keynes may have said in the long run, we're all dead. And I'll agree with that. In the long run, we may all have the coronavirus. But I still say a currency collapse is far more dangerous than a damn flu. Nothing is so dangerous that we must give up our liberty. And definitely no excuse that the state gives us for taking our liberty should be accepted ever under any circumstance. The state itself is far more dangerous than any other danger they could possibly point to. So let me ask you this. Would you rather risk losing your job or risk getting the coronavirus? The answer to that question should be on you. You, the individual, not the state. Everybody is free to stay home or free to go out. And that's a choice only you can make to the argument that you are risking other people's health as well. That is truly only the others choosing to risk their health by going out. And to the individual who decides to be a patron at your business, he or she is willfully accepting the risk. The great Ron Paul recently published an article, The Coronavirus Hoax, which I would like to quote. Governments love crises because the people are fearful. They are more willing to give up freedoms for promises that the government will take care of them. After 9-11, for example, Americans accepted the near total destruction of their civil liberties in the Patriot Act's hollow promises of security. It is ironic to see the same Democrats who tried to impeach President Trump last month for abuse of power, demanding that the administration grab more power and authority in the name of fighting a virus that has thus far killed less than 100 Americans. 
declaring a pandemic emergency on Friday. President Trump now claims the power to quarantine individuals suspected of being infected by the virus and has political rights stop and seize any plane, train, or automobile to stymie the spread of contagious disease. He can even call out the military to condone a U.S. city or state. State and local authoritarians love panic as well. The mayor of Champaign, Illinois, signed an executive order declaring the power to ban the sale of guns and alcohol and cut off gas, water, and electricity to any citizen. The governor of Ohio just essentially closed his entire state. The chief warmonger of the Trump administration is without a doubt Anthony Fauci, head of the National Institute of Allergy and Infectious Diseases at the National Institutes of Health. Fauci is all over the media, serving up outright falsehoods to stir up even more panic. He testified to Congress that the death rate for the coronavirus is 10 times that of the seasonal flu, a claim without any scientific basis. On Face the Nation, Fauci did his best to further damage an already tanking economy by stating, right now, personally, myself, I wouldn't go to a restaurant. He has pushed for closing the entire country down for 14 days. If anything, what people like Fauci and other fearmongers are demanding will likely make the disease worse. The martial law they dream about will have people hunkered down inside their homes instead of going outdoors or to the beach where the sunshine and the fresh air would help boost immunity. The panic produced by these fear mongers is likely helping spread the disease as massive crowds rush into Walmart and Costco for that last roll of toilet paper. The madness over the coronavirus is not limited to politicians and the medical community. The head of the neoconservative Atlantic Council wrote an editorial this week urging NATO to pass an Article 5 declaration of war against the COVID-19 virus. Are they going to send in tanks and drones to wipe out these microscopic enemies? People should ask themselves whether this coronavirus pandemic could be a big hoax with the actual danger of disease massively exaggerating by those who seek profit financially or politically from the ensuing panic. That is not to say the disease is harmless. Without question, people will die from the coronavirus. Those in vulnerable categories should take precautions to limit their risk of exposure. But we've also seen this in the movie before. Government overhypes a threat as an excuse to grab more of our freedoms when the threat is over. However, they never give our freedom back. Very wise and true words, as always, from the great Dr. Paul. Again, don't take the virus like a corona with a lime and a salt. Again, take precautions, sure. But don't allow yourselves to be fear-mongered into thinking that there aren't more important issues you could be missing, such as Congress sneaking in through some more tyrannical legislation while the circle jerk of authoritarian one-upmanship gets applauded by the distracted masses. Be mindful and pay attention now more than ever. But most importantly, be careful of the gigantic magic trick of misdirection. Now is specifically not the time to panic, but to be a leader. America was built by individuals who stood up to evils and injustices of the state at times such as these. If you're afraid of the economic future of the country, as you should be, save your money, buy gold, have food storage, get a gun, have a bug out bag, and most importantly, a plan.
Do what you need to do to feel safe and prepared. But don't fool yourself into thinking that the biggest threat to your safety is the virus and not your government and your neighbors who are drinking the hysteria Kool-Aid that the state is dishing out. No matter what you think about the pandemic, understand one thing. I will not set myself on fire to keep you warm. I'll help you find firewood. I will lend you a blanket, but I will never compromise my rights or safety to appease the masses. And neither should you. It's Miller time. No need to be a Modelo citizen about the coronavirus. Be free. This is Johnny Rocket. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rocket, and I'm here with my co-host, Miss Sherry Voluntary. And we're talking to Professor Ben O'Neill. Professor, thank you so much for being here, man. Thank you for having me. You're going to enjoy this because this is tradition. It's called Rocket Fire. What we do on Rocket Fire, sir, is I'm going to ask you a series of 10 questions. These questions will be politically related. And if you can answer these questions between 30 to 60 seconds, that'd be badass. Professor O'Neill, are you ready to play Rocket Fire? Sure. All right. All right. Here we go. Question one. In your opinion, what is the core characteristic of any given economy? Boy, uh, I guess look, mutual exchange and gains from trade would be the core. Right on. Question two. Is gated communities bad for cities? Uh, well, look, I don't think they're inherently bad. I think ideally you would like uh, the ability to tra- travel uh, within each other's communities and gated communities tend to occur when you have cities that are not functioning well when you have areas of high crime and people start becoming afraid of each other. So I don't think gated communities are optimal, um, but they're generally a symptom, not a cause of an underlying problem. Right on, man. Question three. What are some of the things people in the world should consider in regards to privacy and the coronavirus? Oh, gosh. Um, look, I, I'm, I think I'm going to punch that one. I'm, it, it is uh, the deep out, out of my area of expertise, I'm afraid. Give it a shot. You can give it a shot. Oh, boy. Look, you know, I, I am fairly, fairly open to, you know, uh, emergency measures for kinds of quarantines and so on. I, I'm fairly laid back about uh, things that I would ordinarily regard as impositions on my liberty uh, in times of uh, health emergencies and things like this. So... I look, you know, I, I I couldn't in 30 seconds and on the spot formulate a, a good idea of what privacy expectations I'd have. Right on, man. Well, question four: How can mathematics make smart people dumb? Uh, I think you're referring to an article I wrote on the I, uh, Mises I website. Am. <laughs> um, look, I am. you know, this is this was uh, an article just involving an instance where sometimes. Uh, you know, the use of complicated mathematics obscures um, the essence of a problem from people. And you'll sometimes find that, you know, when you're dealing with situations with heavy levels of mathematics, that sometimes people have a little bit of difficulty seeing past the technical aspects of those mathematics to the underlying core of the problem. And so this can make uh, very intelligent people come up with theories and ideas that are actually really insane, ridiculous ideas. And the essence of those ideas are often obscured by the the technical dressing uh, of mathematics. Roger that. Question five. I understand that zoning is immoral 
and the economic deficiencies it imposes. But could you explain how zoning could be considered theft? Like any kind of government imposition on what you can do with your own property, you know, I suppose any kind of uh, zoning law involves the state restricting the use that a person can make of their own property. And so, you know, arguably this is a partial ownership claim of the state in private property. Um, so mm-hmm. from a libertarian perspective, if you view the coercive transfer of property as theft, then that would be, I suppose, a partial theft, that when you impose a partial ownership of a person's property by coercion, um, it's it's a partial example of just outright taking that property by coercion. Bam! Awesome Easy answer. Libertarian argument, anyway. That no, that's great, man. Question six: Is there such thing as the right to preserve the value of one's property, not necessarily the condition? Yeah, I think this is an important distinction. No, I don't think uh, libertarian theory recognizes a right to a particular value of a piece of property. What libertarian theory suggests is that a person has the right to the physical integrity of their property. But for example, if my neighbor builds a very ugly house next door to me and has an ugly car body out the front, you know, while while that might detract from the value of my property, um, so long as he's not actually invading my property in any way, uh, libertarians generally don't recognize a right to have the value of your property preserved from the actions of others. I'm with you, man. Question seven. Is discrimination wrong? And doesn't everybody discriminate? Boy, that's a whole show for itself. I'm sure you're asking me because you know that I've written about oh, five I or know. six articles on this. I know. I'll tell you I what, love it. I'm going to give you nothing it. here for 30 seconds except for an invitation that if you'd like to do a whole nother show on that, we could do it. Bam. All right. Here we go. Question eight. Does capitalism make us more materialistic? I think the answer here is no. And again, this is something I think you're asking me because I've written an article directly on it. I know, because um, I'm, I'm, I'm that, good. I, I research <laughs> you, sir. Yeah, this is a blast from the past for me. Um, <laughs> so, you know, one of the things that happens when you have the kind of rising wealth that is entailed by a capitalist system is that as people meet more and more of the requirements for their material needs, Economics says that there ought to be a transfer um, towards preferences for non-material goods. So in economic theory, we make this distinction between what are called exchangeable goods, which are things we can buy and sell, versus Mm -hmm. non-exchangeable goods like friendship, romance, things that are very valuable to us but which we can't buy or sell. And so as we get richer and richer and we satisfy our need for exchangeable goods more and more, Uh, Economic theory says that there'll be diminishing marginal returns on that, and therefore people will generally shift their preferences and their effort towards non-material goods. So actually what you would expect is that as societies get richer and richer under capitalism, people will tend to become less and less materialistic in terms of their preferences because their material needs have already been met much better at the baseline. Sure. No, I'm with you, man. Question on this one. What comes after quantitative easing? especially in the United States and the Western world. What happens? Uh, Well, look, you know, potentially some kind of disaster, I think. Uh, (laughs) You know, when when we operate an entire economy Uh, just by monetizing enormous amounts of debt, uh, eventually 
usually inflation is a long-term result <laughs> of that process. Hyperinflate, and yeah. Historically, even hyperinflation, and then uh, historically, what comes after hyperinflation for any of you history buffs out there is usually not pretty. No, no. And uh, this is not the last question, but I kind of lied. But here we go. Question ten: Do you, sir, have do you have white guilt? Because I do. Guilt. I, I I feel uh, guilty because I'm white. I don't have white <laughs> I'm guilt. Kidding. Okay, no, good. Uh, <laughs> awesome. Yeah. And the bonus question, this is from my girlfriend, because we were, like, looking through Australia pictures, and we're, you know, mm -hmm. researching Australia, your beautiful country. And have you ever met a quokka? And are they as friendly as they look? And can people adopt them? Because those are the cutest things I have ever seen. <laughs> yeah, Have you seen those cute. things? Uh, oh, yes. my God, um, dude. Those... <laughs> yeah, the the Australian government takes a dim view on on people adopting native marsupials <laughs> as pets. Uh, so I'm not certain of the legal stance, but my uh, off the top of the head guess would be that you probably can't adopt a cocker. Uh, I, I can follow up on that and find out though if you don't. And like, dude, I would love to know. Like, how much money do <laughs> yeah, I have look, to pay? I really don't know, but um, they're but very dude, cute. Aren't that's, they that's cute? True. Aren't they cute? Yes. <laughs> oh, my God. If you guys have not heard of quokkas, they are the most cutest yeah, little yeah. marsupial. Like a tiny cross between a tiny kangaroo and a rat that's about 100 times cuter. I know. They are so cute. Oh, my God. <laughs> anyway, so that's Rocket Fire. Give it up for Professor Ben O'Neill. Professor, thank you so much for being here on the show, man. Summertime and the living be's easy. It's summertime and the living be's easy. Hey, this is Blast Off with Johnny Rock, and I'm here with my co host, Miss Sherry Voluntary. Hello. Thank you so much, Sherry, for being here. Thank you for having me. Yeah, yeah, you're our guest co host. And, uh, I guess Raylene is exploring the galaxy. She's out in Saturn and yeah, she's exploring our anuses <laughs> and like that. So I don't know what she's doing, but no, she's on vacation and we miss Raylene. So, but she has her family. She has like a platoon of yeah. children. And so it's, it's cool. So she's like, Johnny, I just can't make this one. So I'm like, cool. I got your, I got your six. And Sherry, thank you so much for filling in for her. You're welcome. Anything for Raylan. Now, oh, there you go. So we're talking to Professor Ben O'Neill. Yay! Bam! Professor, thank you so much for being here, sir. And uh, Sherry, take it away. Yeah. So, Professor, I just uh, wondered, are there any examples of there being a racial motive to these things? Yeah, sure. Um, so, I mean, there's two kinds of cases you see historically. So, I mean, it's historically in the U.S., Sometimes zoning laws were implemented to try to prevent inward migration of poor people generally, and sometimes they were used specifically to exclude unwanted racial groups. And the two kinds of cases you generally get are either cases where a zoning rule is imposed directly to try to um, derogate from the ability of an unwanted racial group to get into an area or to prosper in a particular area. And then the other type of case you get is where you have a, a zoning law that is more neutral on its face, 
but then the government authorities apply it in an unequal manner. And there are also cases mm. like that. So, for example, uh, in a, a U.S. case called Yikho versus Hopkins, uh, the Supreme Court looked at a zoning ordinance in San Francisco that required a license to have a laundry in a wooden building. This was quite some time ago where you had a lot of uh, Chinese migrants into the U.S. who uh, were active in the kind of laundry uh, area of the economy, and a lot of them were in wooden buildings. And so San Francisco had imposed uh, this requirement for a license to have a laundry in wooden buildings, and this was done ostensibly to prevent fire hazards because of the building being wooden, um, and the zoning law um, was found by the court to be neutral with respect to race insofar as the, the law itself did not distinguish between the race of the relevant property owner. But the court also found that the authorities had unfairly denied licenses to Chinese applicants. So there were cases like this where the zoning law itself was considered by the courts to be neutral, but then the actual authorities charged with implementing those laws uh, were being or were found to have been unfair in the manner in which they uh, granted licenses to some people and denied hmm. them to others. Interesting. 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 Yeah. So, Professor, how would zoning laws work in a free society? Now, would that be like a homeowners association and would there be spontaneous orders? And is that okay? Um, so we can already see a kind of an example of private zoning law on a very small scale when you look at how an apartment building is run. So, for okay. example, uh, if any of your listeners who own an apartment in an apartment building would know that they own their title to their particular apartment, but they also have a joint ownership interest in a kind of common area in, in that apartment. And so this is kind of a little microcosm, I suppose, of a, a purely private ownership-based system okay. where you have joint grounds. Now, if, if you kind of expand... Um, that kind of system out to a community, you can imagine that you would have a whole lot of individual private property owners who own, say, homes, and then if they wish to impose some kind of restriction in the community, perhaps they want to limit the height of buildings in that community, or they want to say that certain kinds of businesses can't operate there, or some other kind of restriction they could negotiate that freely between the various property owners. And if they agree, they could then place restrictive covenants on each other's land title, granting okay. uh, a kind of a partial ownership interest um, to each person in that community. So, for example, if, if you wanted to say on a particular block, okay, no one can build over two storeys, uh, you could each owner impose a restrictive covenant on their land title saying that you can't build over two stories on that land and then that land uh, that that ownership covenant would be held by the other property owners and and would just pass with respect to that title uh, in terms of the kind of system that creates you're right it does create a kind of system of spontaneous order where you have property owners now capable of uh, adding or removing restrictions within their local neighbourhood by mutual agreement. And so what you'd be likely to see is a kind of uh, spontaneous order of negotiated addition and removal of restrictive covenants um, within communities. Right on. Okay, Sherry, give us the last question here. 
Yeah. So this is, it's moving a, into a, a different sort of subject, but um, I'm curious as to your particular skill set and how you, as a statistician and a lawyer, how that helps you see things that maybe other people don't see. Huh. Uh, I guess I'm a kind of jack of all trades, master of none, perhaps. <laughs> <laughs> Look, my, my primary expertise is in statistical theory and, uh, you know, the mathematics that goes along with that. So, so the majority of, of what I, uh, do is, is in statistics and, uh, applied statistics and theoretical statistics. Um, but as you say, I, I do have a background. I, I had previously practiced briefly as a lawyer and I kind of have broad interests. Um, in, in law and political philosophy. Uh, in terms of, I guess, the kinds of things that you occasionally get to see, I mean, um, I'll occasionally run, off, run across uh, subjects where it's useful to have multidisciplinary knowledge, um, to know a little bit about how the legal system works, to understand a bit of underlying political philosophy and theory, and to understand... Um, you know, quite a bit of economics and so on. So, I mean, there are, you know, issues like this that certainly arise in looking at libertarian theory and so on, where it's an interface of political philosophy, economics and law. Um, and it's useful for those, those things. But, you know, there's a hell of a lot of very smart people out there that know a lot more on individual subjects than I. Hmm. <laughs> right on, sir. I love it. I love it. Okay. Sherry, prepare for landing. Roger that, Johnny. Seat belts and shoulder harnesses. Your body, your choice. Landing gear and downward expanders. NAP initiated. Anti-state superchargers. Defragged and woke. Landing lights and guest websites. Professor Ben O'Neill, give us your dot com, sir. I'm a, I'm a dinosaur and therefore don't have a dot com, but uh, you can uh, shoot me an email through the Australian National University, which is uh, where I currently work. Um, and I'm happy to uh, hear from any of your listeners that have any questions. Um, and yeah, I'll hopefully be able to shoot a reply to any interesting questions I get. Rock and roll. Okay, so on my final note, zoning laws and other laws that restrict what people can do with their property do more harm than good. People argue that I don't want someone building a factory in my neighborhood, but the fact is that nobody wants to build a factory in your goddamn neighborhood. They want to build a factory where it's easy to get supplies in and products out. There's plenty of room for employees to park. That's not your neighborhood. In an increasingly post-industrial economy, that argument is most irrelevant. I'm arguing for allowing natural organization of communities and neighborhoods. I'm arguing for healthier neighborhoods and communities. The elimination of such anti-poverty rights laws allow this. I will not make people more self-reliant and thus less independent on government. Meaning there will be more people contributing to the economy, to society, and to the neighborhoods and communities. People will also be healthier, happier and less stress. Social engineering only works to destroy communities and make people more reliant on government programs. This is Johnny Rocket with Sherry Voluntary, always launching ideas. We'll see you next week. Peace. Rock and roll. Minus five, minus four, minus three, minus two, minus one. Come on, people, get on the blast off. A blast off. Yes, we're on a trip on a rugged ship. Come on, folks. Me. 
on, people. Get on done, asshole.